Welcome to MKB Law's Interactive Insights podcast series. This episode we're focusing on corporate law, in particular shareholders agreements. I'm Lindsay Henderson and I'm an Associate Director within the Commercial Department here and I'm joined by my colleague Gordon McElroy. Morning Lindsay. Morning, how are you? I'm very well thanks. Good. I suppose the point of this podcast we see it as a useful reminder to remind people why they might need a shareholders agreement and some of the things they might contain. So I think at the very basic level it would be a good place to start with what are some of the key provisions we expect to see in a shareholders agreement. Yeah, so joint stock companies, companies with shares have been around for 150 years or more. Um, and as you would imagine over that length of time, the, the law has created rules about the way the members of the company, the shareholders, uh, interact with each other, the way that they transact with each other and the way that they can control that company. Those rules are uh, mostly within the Companies Act and then within the standard articles of association for every company called the model articles. And they're very good for most situations, but not for all situations. So the sorts of things that they don't provide for very well is minority protection. So, mm-hmm. uh, anybody with uh, 50% or less of a company is a minority shareholder and is um, uh, maybe subject to exploitation by whoever holds the majority of the shares in the company. So one of the first things that you would start with with a shareholder agreement is looking to see what are the respective shareholdings of the uh, of the members of the company and what protection might some of them need against the possibility of oppression from the others. Then you move on to areas such as how is the company to be financed? Do the shareholders have an obligation to put money into the company yep. over and above their share subscriptions? If they do, um, how is that going to be extracted from the company at some point in the future? If there are bank guarantees, are they obliged to uh, uh, provide guarantees as shareholders for the company's liabilities? That could be a very onerous commitment to take on. They may have rights to appoint directors. And uh, one of the most important things to talk about at the start of any business and any company being set up is how do you get out at the end? If there's one area that is likely to create future disputes, it's not thinking about the exit. And that's probably something that at the very beginning when somebody's forming a business and forming a company that they're not thinking about um, and they don't realise that that's going to be an issue at the end because they're so excited and enthusiastic to get things going at the very outset that they're not thinking of how it's all going to end. Yeah, that's really that's that's really true, and unfortunately, exit can come about in lots of different ways. You know, so um, the the death of a shareholder is likely to be an exit. Um, success is the best exit, but even that can create some problems, Very and we easily. all need to understand where we are. Very easily. Just on the topic of death of a shareholder, that's something I'm starting to see more and more people starting to think more about. Dying. No, not more dying. Um, People starting to think about it more. I don't know whether it's been the last few years people are thinking more of their own mortality. But I'm starting to see people consider death more and what they should think about. That is something that we build in often in the shareholders agreement. How would you approach that type of thing yourself? Well, by the time you reach my age, you'll be thinking about it a lot more. (laughs) Um, it, It can be quite a complicated area. So the first thing is to understand what the company is doing 
If it's a company which is largely just holding investments, the probability is that the shareholders want their interest in that company to pass to their family and to their successors. Yep. And that, that's easy to accommodate because you can just put in provision for the transmission of shares on death. It becomes more complicated if it's a trading company where it's closer to a partnership than uh, a traditional company or closer to a partnership than being like a, a PLC. In that situation, the shareholders are dependent on each other to provide services. And if uh, one of the shareholders dies, then you have a vacuum created within the company. But you probably don't want that person's spouse or family stepping in. They may not be able to um, provide the necessary support to the company. They may not have the skills that are needed. Um, so that usually gives rise to rights to buy and sell the shares, which are captured in cross-option agreements. And cross-option agreements sound uh, quite complicated, but they, they just give a surviving shareholder the right to buy the shares of a deceased shareholder or the deceased shareholder's family and representative the right to sell shares to a surviving shareholder. One of the most important things in any of those situations is to consider where the money is going to come from exactly. if there's a, a purchase or sale. And often that requires insurance. So shareholder protection insurance must be considered at the same time as you're ever talking about shareholder agreements. It's often confused with key man insurance which is a slightly different concept. Shareholder protection insurance is there to create a pot of money to allow one shareholder to buy out the other. Key man insurance creates a pot of money to allow the company to fund getting in an alternative resource to the person who has died. Yeah, it's a key resource actually that I advise an awful lot of clients on now. Yeah, rightly so. In terms of a shareholders agreement, I often find some people seem to struggle in the distinction between what's the difference, do I need a shareholders agreement because we've got articles of association for the company? Yeah, so that's just a technical legal point and the the important thing is to get the principles right. Whether they sit uh, in the articles or the shareholders agreement uh, often doesn't matter. Frequently they need to sit in both. The the difference, Lindsay, uh, for what it's worth is that the, uh, the shareholders agreement is only a contract between the shareholders and is just enforceable in the same way that a contract is. The articles bind the company itself. So to do something which is in breach of the articles means that it's a nullity, it's as if it has never happened. Whereas if there's just a breach of the shareholders agreement, then you have to sue for breach of contract. Um, for some provisions that can be very important, so you'll want to restrict the transfer of shares yep. um, and uh, to have a restriction in the articles which says that you can't transfer shares off to a third party uh, means that if a shareholder attempts to do that, it's null and void, it just hasn't happened. Whereas if you have that same restriction in the shareholders agreement, then the offended shareholder, the one who is saying you shouldn't have transferred your shares, may have to go to court to get an order to stop that. I think that's why we would say it's key to come 
to a solicitor as early as possible to guide you through that process and to say you know we can guide what should maybe you should think about putting in the articles so it's treated as null and void we can help guide that process and get the thought process working with the client yeah and uh, i'm sure you've heard me say often Lindsay, that uh, no shareholders agreement is better than a bad shareholders agreement i use it with my own clients yeah and and that's very true as i said earlier the companies act provides a lot of protection for company members and a, a bad shareholders agreement can actually make a bad situation worse 100 percent, and we've seen that can you give some examples actually of maybe where there hasn't been where you've seen where there hasn't been a shareholders agreement in place and a problem has arisen within the company or between the shareholders that maybe could have been resolved much easier if there was something written in place yeah well i can think of a couple of fairly recent examples of uh uh, of cases that we have had. One which was really very challenging for everybody involved came about following the death of uh, a 50-50 shareholder. There was no agreement to regulate what happened and our client, who was the surviving shareholder, found himself with effectively a new partner who he didn't uh, want to have. That new partner was not a person who understood business and um, had unrealistic expectations of the way the company should be managed, the amount of cash or dividend that could be extracted from the company, felt that the, uh, the existing management was prejudicial, uh, felt that there was uh, collusion amongst the existing management to keep the, the new shareholder excluded, which I don't believe was the case, but you can understand how somebody coming in in that situation might feel like that. Yep. And uh, the net result was eventually the surviving shareholder bought out the new shareholder, but there was a long period of acrimony. There was potential litigation. There were employees lost. There was disruption to the business. There was overall value lost within the company. Um, and uh, it, those were all issues that could have been easily resolved with a bit of thought several years before. Uh, another example I can think of is two men uh, who have a very successful company, they're 50-50 shareholders, uh, and as they're advancing in age, one simply doesn't want to work in the company anymore, but he's there as a shareholder. and. Friction's developing because the, the, the other chap says, you're not pulling your weight, but he's still entitled to his dividends. Yep. He's still entitled to everything else. They've no, they've no succession plan. They don't know what's going to happen uh, if one of them dies or when one of them dies, because sadly it is inevitable, isn't it? And uh, that can be addressed by a shareholder's agreement. And I hope in that case that it will be addressed by a shareholder. And that's the key as well, that it's a low way we'd advise that a company gets a shareholders agreement at day one or as soon as possible in formation, that it's actually not too late and you don't it's you can put one in at any point realistically. Um ideally obviously not when there is a dispute in place. It's much harder to do in that <laughs> Absolutely. case. Absolutely. Yeah, it's always much easier to negotiate things when you're in agreement. Um but yeah, right up to the doors of a court, um, before there's a an unfair prejudice petition, you can still get things sorted out by agreement. 
You touched briefly on a few of those examples on 50-50 shareholding, which I see quite often with my own clients. Um, one of the alarm bells that always goes off in those situations with me is, what if they're not on the same page? Um, what do you advise your clients in that situation? So 50-50 uh, companies give rise to a thing called deadlock, which is that you can't take a decision. For a decision to be taken between the shareholders of a company, there must be a majority vote. So a majority is anything more than 50%. Just on that point, there's, uh, there's something that sometimes gets lost, which is if you have agreed that one shareholder has a veto over a particular aspect of running the company. So for example, you might say that the company can't uh, invest in any capital worth more than £50,000. And uh, the the majority shareholders say, well, uh, there's something here we need to buy at £100,000. The minority has a veto on that. That also gives rise to a deadlock. So nothing happens. Nothing happening in a company can cause all sorts of problems and uh, overall loss of value. So you need to have a mechanism to resolve the deadlock. There are lots of different uh, types of uh, deadlock resolution provisions which uh, have lovely names like a Mexican shootout or a Russian roulette. They are um, in some ways high risk strategies because they require one shareholder to buy out the other if there is no if there's no agreement about how to go forward, uh, and you know that that can be by way of you put an offer to your fellow shareholders, but you say I'm prepared to buy your shares at this price per share, but if you don't want to sell to me, then I'm willing to sell my shares to you. So there's a moral hazard, there's a risk within that yep. that keeps everybody honest. Um, that can work well to focus minds. It always has the problem that the wealthier shareholder is capable of buying the pot. The, the guy who's got the access to capital is always in a stronger negotiating position. And inevitably, um, we will advise that before you reach that stage, there should be an intermediate stage of negotiation or possibly mediation yep. before you invoke uh, one of those um, you know, final shootout uh, and called shootout for good reason uh, mechanisms. We touched briefly on minority shareholders and it's something again that I've seen quite frequently in the last year um, minority shareholders coming into companies. What kind of protections do you think about putting in the shareholders agreements in those instances for the minority coming in? Much of what we see is the quasi-partnership type arrangement where you've got a small number of shareholders, they have a trading business, uh, could be in professional services, could be in manufacturing, could be in retail, whatever it is, Um, and uh, you have, uh, as you say, a minority shareholder. Again, the advice you give will depend on the uh, size of the minority shareholding, so somebody with a uh, a five percent stake in the company is not entitled to the same rights as somebody with a 25 35 or 45 percent stake but the the range of protections that's available to you one of the most obvious is the right to appoint a director yep so 
as you know, Lindsay, the uh, management of a company is in the hands of the board of directors. The shareholders are the owners of the company and they delegate all their power to the board of directors to manage it. So if you're a minority shareholder and you at least want to know what's going on and want to be able to influence decisions, having the right to uh, appointment as a director on the board is a very basic level of protection. The next range of things to consider is what's called reserved matters. And they're called reserved matters because they're items that are important to the running management and finance of the company that uh, are reserved away from the board to the shareholders. So you can say that, I gave the example earlier of a capital commitment, yeah. that uh, spending an amount of capital uh, over, as I say, let, let, let's say for example 50,000 pounds requires the consent of all of the shareholders or maybe all of the shareholders who are more than a 25% share or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that, that's an obvious example. You can have hire of key employees could be a reserved matter, changing the articles of association, decisions to wind up the company. So uh, you can say any of those items requires the consent of the shareholders. That leaves the majority in a position where they can get on with most of the running of the company, but certain key items can't be dealt with uh, unless the minority agrees to it. The most obvious one is selling all of the trade of the company. Yeah, and again, I think that's key, why we would advise clients to speak to us. I know I've had clients in front of me before that have been coming in as minority shareholders and have been of the impression that they would have no say and no rights because they're in the minority. Um, so if they, you know, once they speak to us and we're able to tell them that they can have reserved matters and the right to appoint someone on the board, as long as that's agreed between the parties, they do have protections that can be built in. Yeah, so the protections under the Companies Act, the Unfair Prejudice Petition, is very effective in many situations, but it's a blunt instrument. Agreed. What about if you're investing in the company, if you're just going to invest, what kind of things would you expect to see? I suppose a lot of the issues that we've talked about apply, but Lindsay, as you know as well as I do, we could talk about uh, investment for half an hour, and uh, I think if anybody wants to hear about that, they can come back and listen to us talk about that subject next week. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, actually. I think that was really useful, Gordon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, if you've any questions on this topic or you require any further assistance, please don't hesitate to get in touch with the corporate team here at MKB Law. We'd be delighted to assist. Thank you for listening. Please check back in on our social media channels for details of our next episode.